We're going to be in 2 Kings chapter 16. If you ever wonder where we're going to be in the Bible, just pick up where you left off last week. So whatever page you were on last week, that's probably where we'll be the next time. It's not hard to determine, and you never have to ask the pastor or me, what are you preaching on today? We'll be in Hosea this morning, and ours will be in 2 Kings 16. Uh, from time to time, I just remind you, if you have one of these noise-making devices, telephone, just be sure you silence it. That way you can just take your pizza order after church like the rest of us. Israel and Syria had set themselves against Judah, the nation from which the Son of God would be born as a man. And Judah needed God's help. But King Ahaz, their king, was a rebel. And rather than being the son and servant of the Most High God, Ahaz declared himself the son and the servant of the king of Assyria. What a foolish thing he did. And based upon that sonship, that relationship, Ahaz expected the Syrian king, the Assyrian king, to save him from Judah's enemies. And we learned a great lesson in that. Ahaz unintentionally taught us that our sonship in the gospel, in the covenant of the gospel, also entitles us to be saved because the salvation God provided through the sacrifice of his son Jesus, through that blood, is the covenant to which we agree and the covenant which God demands we agree with in order to be saved. We can't say, now Lord, I know you sent Jesus to die, but I thought of another way. Well, that's what all of the false religions of the world are made of, is somebody who thought of another way, and there is no other way. And now that the Assyrian king Tiglath-Pileser, I'll be glad when we move on from him so I don't have to say his name anymore. But I have to right now. We don't skip any parts of the Bible, right? Including the names that are hard to pronounce. This Assyrian king has now killed the Syrian king, Reason, and took the Syrian capital, Damascus. So Judah was temporarily saved from Syria. Now let's read on. 2 Kings chapter 16, if you're just joining us, and we're going to look at verse 10 now. And King Ahaz went to Damascus to meet Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, and saw an altar that was at Damascus. And King Ahaz sent to Urijah the priest... That's also pronounced Uriah, the priest, the fashion of the altar and the pattern of it, according to all the workmanship thereof. So let's take this verse apart, examine it, learn from it. It says, And King Ahaz went to Damascus to meet Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria. In doing this, Ahaz stepped further and further away from God's command 
concerning Judah's relationship with these Gentile nations. He goes to Damascus when he should have stayed in Jerusalem. I'll remind you of a verse about the strange woman we've studied in Proverbs on several Wednesday nights. And you can watch that truth that we learned about in Proverbs play out right here in our text. It's amazing how consistent God is with his doctrine. Proverbs 7, verses 25 through 27. Now, if you take notes, just write that down. You don't have to try to turn there. Proverbs 7, verses 25 through 27 says, Let not thine heart decline to her ways. That her is the strange woman. Go not astray in her paths, for she hath cast down many wounded. Yea, many strong men have been slain by her. Her house is the way to hell, going down to the chambers of death. Now there's a warning. Watch when this warning is disregarded. Watch what happens. Looking back in verse 10, now Ahaz is in Damascus, and it says next, and saw an altar that was at Damascus. Now, Damascus is a strange woman to Judah. Syria is a strange woman to Judah. Judah has no business going astray into Syria's paths. And now that Ahaz has done so, he lays eyes on the strange woman, which is represented by that altar at Damascus. It said he saw an altar that was at Damascus. Now the prideful man may say, or woman, may say, Oh, I'm just looking. I can look if I want to. As long as I don't touch the merchandise. Have you ever heard that foolish statement? Certainly. I can't tell you whether a man who sees a strange woman will always take that next step into adultery. I don't know whether he will or won't. But I can tell you this. If he never goes astray into her path, he'll never see her in the first place. And if he never sees her, he'll never touch her. That is a certainty. And because this lesson we learned in Proverbs about earthly adultery, that is, between people, because that lesson parallels the lesson about adultery that is spiritual, then we need to learn a little bit more about it. When you find, now we're talking about spiritual adultery, because that was the sin Judah and Israel were guilty of. And we are also studying about that in Hosea. God said they've committed whoredoms, spiritual whoredom. Now, when you find a pastor who rightly divides the word of truth, the Bible, and whose church members are hungry for it, then you don't need to go anywhere else. 
That's if you're in here, that's if you're watching online, or that's for somebody who listens to this later on. If a man attends church in Tyler, Texas, and the pastor of that church rightly divides the word of truth, then that man doesn't need to say, well, I'm, I appreciate what he does, but I'm going to go somewhere else. He doesn't need to go to the church on the mountain or the church in the shade just so he can compare all of those churches. You don't need to window shop for a church. If you have to go to 48 churches before you find one to preach the truth, that's fine. But if you find one that preaches truth, rightly divides the word of truth, stop shopping. Don't need to go anywhere else. Here's what the flesh tends to do. Although the seeking man finds the right-believing church, that's what Brother Wisdom named their church, right-believing church. I love that. That shows you what's most important to him. But although the seeking man finds the right-believing church, the flesh wants a church with a little more flair, maybe a little more entertainment, a little more excitement, so-called. So, he goes to that contemporary exciting church in Damascus, as our example is here in the text. And when he does that, he gets drawn away from the right-believing church. And soon he starts justifying why he left the right-believing church and why the church on the mountain is better. Now, what business did Ahaz have in going to Damascus? What business did he have looking at any altar but the one God ordained for his people? Well, let's look at the next phrase here in verse 10, where it says, And King Ahaz sent to Uriah the priest the fashion of the altar, and the pattern of it according to all the workmanship thereof. Now Ahaz has not only gone into the paths of the strange woman, he's not only looked at her merchandise, but now he's sent a picture of her to Uriah the priest. To, hey, take a look at this. Now they didn't have cameras back then, but they certainly had people who could draw artists and again, this king may reason within himself, just like people do today. I just took a picture. I haven't done anything wrong. Well, what is pornography but pictures and videos of that which is forbidden? Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 28. For the person who says, I can look, I can take a picture. I can look at the pictures as long as I don't touch. I'm okay. Listen to what Jesus said, Matthew 5, 28. But I say unto you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. So that goes for what your eyes behold in person, on television, in a magazine, or as most common as is most common now on the internet, 
or through any other media for that matter. When a person commits physical adultery in the heart, as Jesus said, you look to lust and you've already done it in your heart. When a person does that in the heart, what they're saying is, I'm tired of the one I have. I want someone else. I want to try something else. Now, if you translate that mindset to spiritual adultery, because that's the lesson we're supposed to learn from all things earthly and physical, we're to learn a spiritual lesson from them. And not forget the other lesson, by the way. If you translate that mindset to the spiritual adulterer, somebody like Ahaz, he so much as said, I'm tired of the religion of my fathers. The one that was passed down by God to Moses and by the Levitical priesthood. I want to try something else. That's what he's saying here. If you've been with us in the book of Hosea, you learn that Israel committed spiritual whoredom against God, not necessarily through physical adultery. It was spiritual adultery. They were fascinated with the religions of this world. They beheld them. They saw them. They beheld them. And then they served their false gods. They went astray into the path of the strange woman. And then they fell prey to her wicked ways. Ahaz, by going to Damascus, beholding the altar at Damascus, and sending a picture of it back to Uriah the priest, Ahaz has already committed spiritual adultery in his heart. And now he's about to commit that sin with his hands, in his actions. People have come and go, uh, gone in this church, and there may be some who say, well, we need to add something to our church. We need this or we need that. The only thing that we need to add here are more Bible-believing, spiritually hungry people. We don't care what you look like, where you came from, what your religious background is. That's what we want. That's who we want to add. Now, we invite everyone in. But coming as a visitor and being added to the church are a couple of different things. We don't walk up and interrogate somebody in the parking lot before we let them in the door concerning their spiritual beliefs. We know no matter what those beliefs are, they need to hear the truth. But if a person says, and many have, uh, I'd like to join the church. All right. That's a serious move. And that person or those people we take privately and the pastor counsels them, asks some questions, tries to find out whether they're saved and what their beliefs are and so forth. But sometimes people say, well, we, we need more of this and we need more of that. And you know those people who are right, who are Bible believers, who are spiritually hungry, need to come to a place like this or wherever else such a church exists so they can be taught the truth. Ahaz didn't need to add a new altar in the house of the Lord. There was already one there. 
what he needed to do rather than adding a new altar is believe the old one. Believe in what the old one stood for. What the old one represented. We're here for about two and a half to three hours a week total. From the time we walk in to the time we dismiss, roughly two and a half to three hours. We pray to the Lord, we sing to the Lord, and we get into the Bible as quickly as we can. And we stay there until we're done. And guess what we do after we're done? We go home so we can come back. And I can't think of anything that needs to be added to that. I've been here a little over 10 years. Brother Fulton has been here closer to 11 years. And if anything, things have been chopped that didn't need to be there. And sometimes people get upset with those sorts of things. Others say, good, boy, that was taking up a lot of our time. And those things creep in. They creep into our own lives too, don't they? But I can't think of anything that needs to be added to what we're doing. And that's not pompous. That's not being conceited. It's just trying to be obedient to God's word. In fact, anything added to that might very well be an altar from Damascus. It would be something that some other congregation is doing. And you know what I find is that those things usually reduce or replace the amount of time given to the Scriptures. Nobody who, who suggests those things ever says, well, we can cut out our song service to do this, or we can cut out this or that. Seems like it always reduces the amount of time spent teaching the Word. And by God's grace, we are not going to have an altar from Damascus in this church. And not only am I not interested in adding to what we do in this church, I'm also not interested in going to other churches to see what they're doing. There's only one place I need to go to figure out what we're supposed to do. It's right here. I don't need to go ask the pastor of first such and such church or second such and such church or church on the hill or church in the valley. Hey, what are you guys doing? It's not his instructions that I'm supposed to follow. It's God's instructions. So because all of our marching orders are right here, I'm not interested in going somewhere else to see what they're doing. I don't have the time to divide my time and my attention from what God has led us to do here. And what we're doing here doesn't need any competition from the practices and preferences of the worldly church, which, friend, they creep in before you know it. That's why we have to keep our guard up. We can't say, ooh, well, we got it made here. This is great. We're just coasting right along. If you're doing that, you may not be doing what you're supposed to be doing because the devil's not going to fight that. The devil's going to fight when you're working for the Lord. He fights against the gospel ministry. And I'll go a step further by saying I'm not interested in hearing anyone else preach in this church but my pastor. That's, I don't even want to hear me, but I, want to, I do want to teach because that's what God's given me that that gift to do and that calling to do and I know on rare occasions we may have a missionary who speaks or a Christian gives his testimony but I just want to hear my preacher 
my pastor teach God's Word every time I come or on those rare occasions when I have to work late, every time I tune in on the Internet to church. I don't want a traveling evangelist to speak here. We have a pastor. I don't need a revival preacher to come in here and preach a so-called revival meeting. We have a pastor. Guest speakers often make me nervous anyway. With guest speakers, you sometimes end up having to spend time unteaching what they taught so your members don't get confused. In our church, both online and here, we have people at different places in their spiritual walk. Some are baby Christians. Some tune in or who come here may be lost. Others are more mature Christians. And the last thing I want is for one of the lambs that God has assigned to Central Baptist Church ministry to be confused by some hotshot who comes in here and tries to wow the crowd with his oratory and his sugar stick sermon, so-called. Don't need it. I don't want a priest from Damascus. I don't want an altar from Damascus. And I don't want a photograph of either one of them. In fact, from time to time, I'll go back to that table we have in the foyer and just make sure that there's not anything on there that could mislead or confuse somebody. And over the 10 years, and we've had people come and go and come and go, sometimes people, and they mean well, but they'll leave something there. And I'll pick it up and say, oh, no. And it goes into this round file next to Francis and Glenda's piano over here. And that's where it stays. I don't. It's not being ugly, it's gatekeeping. I don't want an altar of Damascus to come in here in any form because we love the people who have been placed in, under this ministry and we don't want them going astray into the path of the worldly church like Ahaz. I've been here over 10 years with Brother Fulton as my pastor. And let me tell you, he's been my pastor a lot longer than that. He just didn't know it. But most of you who are in here now and who are online weren't here when we arrived at this church. There are just a few who were. And one of the things a new pastor has to do is to share his vision with the church. And I can tell you by knowing our pastor and walking this ministry with him even before we came here that he is not the least bit interested in having anything in this church that detracts from the preaching of the gospel. If it doesn't point to the cross, he doesn't want anything to do with it. And the church has whittled down its activities to the ministry of the gospel. Listen, you can't imagine how many people have called this church saying, I'm a missionary to such and such place. And I want the support of your church. And usually it just takes one question to rule that person out. And that is, all right, I want you to pretend I'm a lost person. Can you tell me how to be saved? And that usually does it right there. We don't have to go through a long laundry list because in just a few words, that prospective candidate, who is nothing more in many cases than a priest from Damascus, gives us some worldly invention about how to be saved. Well, they start off right. Well, you need to repent 
And you need to believe that Jesus died for your sins. You need to say this prayer and you need to, boy, they list all kinds of things that Jesus didn't list. We're done. Not only are we not going to support them as a missionary, we're going to witness to them as a lost person because we're not real sure they know the gospel. If you can show, and this is anybody, that what we are doing here is unscriptural or that we're neglecting to do something the Bible says that the church must do, then we want to be humble enough to be educated by the scriptures. You have to show us in the Bible. You can't say, well, when I was growing up, we're done. It's okay that you had a tradition when you were growing up, but if it's not in the Bible, if you can't say, well, this right here says the church is to do this and you all aren't doing it, then we would listen. Do you know why we don't have a so-called altar call? Because it's not in the Bible. And in fact, the church doesn't have an altar. You remember the Old Testament teaching on the altar when God said he told the, the Jews, the Levites, and this was during Moses' time to build an altar. What did he say it will not have? No steps. How many times is that right there called an altar? It's not an altar. God said there will be no steps at my altar because when the priest walked up steps, their nakedness would be visible to those below. So all of that is man-made. It's religious, but it's not in the Bible. You know why we don't have a church soccer team? It's not in the Bible. None of Jesus' commandments and None of the New Testament epistles ever gave such a command or ever laid out such an example. Do you know why we don't set aside preaching on Sunday in order to celebrate Mother's Day, Father's Day, Veterans Day, the Easter Bunny, Santa Claus? None of those are in the Bible. Now, we love our mothers a whole lot. We love our fathers. We love our veterans. In fact, we love everybody. And we love them enough to just do what Jesus commanded the church to do. Both in the Gospels and in the New Testament epistles of the apostles. And we don't need anything or anyone from Damascus. You want to know why my wife and I drive 65 miles one way every Sunday and Wednesday to this church? People back home ask me that. Boy, that's a long way. Yes, it is. And it is worth every tenth of a mile that it takes to get here. Every traffic jam, every red light we have to sit at. The reason we do is because God's word is regularly and rightly taught here. And that's what we need. I've often told my wife, I don't know what we would do if this church shut down or this pastor had to leave or go somewhere else. I don't know what we'd do. And yes, I know there are other churches and other pastors who teach the truth, teach the Bible the way it ought to be taught. But I don't want to have to sift through a bunch of Damascus churches to find one. I'm more thankful for this church and the ministries here than my words can convey to you. But God knows. 
Let's look at what Ahaz sent from Damascus to Uriah, the priest in Jerusalem. Look back in verse 10. When he sent him this depiction, he he sent the fashion of the altar and the pattern of it according to all the workmanship thereof. He sent the fashion of the altar, the pattern of it, according to all the workmanship thereof. So the three words I want to look at there are fashion, pattern, and workmanship. It was so important to Ahaz that his new altar be made exactly like the one in Damascus that he sent the fashion of the altar to Uriah. Now the word fashion is from a Hebrew word that means likeness. And in fact, it's translated as the word likeness the very first time it's used in the Bible, in the Old Testament. And it's found, now if you're taking notes, write down Genesis 1, 26, and then put the letter A next to it. You know why we do that if you've been here very long. That means I'm giving you the first part of that passage. I'm not quoting the entire thing because I just want you to see the use of the word likeness. Genesis 1, 26, and then put the small letter A next to it. And God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. In case you have not been through the Genesis to Jesus course or before that the creation to Christ course, let me explain to you that the word us in that verse does not mean that there are two gods or three gods. It's one God that is expressed, who is expressed in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, what we call the Trinity. And it is significant that God said that man would be created in his likeness. And if you skip down to chapter 5, verse 1 in Genesis, Genesis 5, 1, here's how you read that. This is the book of the generations of Adam. In the day that God created man, in the likeness of God made he him. Now, in that verse, you could substitute the word fashion because it's the same Hebrew word. If you read it in Hebrew, it'd be the same word. You could substitute the word fashion like it is in our text. And then that verse would say, This is the book of the generations of Adam. In the day that God created man, in the fashion of God made he him. Just as God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, man is body, soul, and spirit. We're made after the fashion of God. After the likeness of God. Not only did Ahaz send Uriah the priest the fashion of the altar, but in verse 10 he also sent him the pattern of it. Now pattern is a very similar word to fashion, but they come from different Hebrew words. So there is a slightly different meaning. Both of them can mean the word model, M-O-D-E-L. But the word pattern also means a plan. So you have a model and you have a plan of a model. Now here's an example. When I was a young father to young children, I became a master assembler of thousand-part toys that other people thought would be cute to give to my children at Christmas and birthday and all of that. They didn't have to stay for the aftermath, did they? 
And now that I'm a grandfather, I get to buy my grandchildren toys with a thousand parts so their parents can inherit the blessing of having to assemble those. So their young fathers can pull their hair out just like I did. And there are two things that come with, and we'll use a tricycle for an example. Two things that come with a tricycle that are critical to the, to the success of the one who is going to put it together. One of those things is a picture of the final product. And it's usually on the front of the box. Daddy, I want one of those. Well, sweetie, you know it doesn't look like that in the box. It's just a bunch of parts. That's what I want. Okay, well, all right, if you get it for Christmas or if you get it for your birthday, so be it. I'll put it together. But the other thing that comes with it is a technical drawing, a diagram, where you see the tricycle, but it's in black and white, and all of the washers and the screws and all of those things that go in order are shown to you the way they go in there, and then you're given instructions at the bottom in case you're not a picture person. I need both, by the way. And I need somewhere to put the extra parts when I'm done. So one of these things is a picture of the final assembled tricycle, sidewalk ready. And the other is a diagram that shows the assembly for each part. And yes, there is a likeness drawn on that page, but it's more technical and exact so that every part is put in its proper place. And ideally, there are no leftover parts. So now think of the fashion of the altar as a picture of the final product. And in those days, it would have been somebody who drew it out, color and everything. Here's what it looks like, Uriah. And then think of the pattern of the altar as a technical drawing of the altar. So the builder will know where everything goes as he puts the altar together, or in this case, as he builds the altar. Now, where did Ahaz, boy, this is good. Where did Ahaz get the idea that an altar needed to be built according to a pattern? Here's what God told Moses in Exodus chapter 25, verses 8 through 9. Exodus 25, verses 8 through 9. God told Moses, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. According to all that I show thee after the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all the instruments thereof, even so shall you make it. He didn't say, hey, Moses, I've got this cool looking drawing and even a diagram to show you how to put it all together. If you guys are interested, it's yours for free. You can make an altar like that. If not, give it to someone at he didn't do that. He said, this is how you're going to make it. Here's the pattern, and you will make it according to that pattern. Even so, shall you make it. Shall is not permissive, is it? It is mandatory. The tabernacle and everything in it were to be made according to the pattern that God showed Moses. There was no other pattern. There was no other fashion by which any altar was to be made, but Ahaz insisted on using another pattern, another fashion, to make his own altar. Do you know what happens when you reject the pattern? You reject the one who made the pattern. 
Ahaz not only rejected God's pattern by sending Uriah the pattern of the altar of Damascus, but in doing so, he rejected God. If somebody says, well, you know, I, uh, I mean, I believe in God, but I, I don't believe Jesus is the only way. You've rejected the pattern, so you've rejected God. Jesus said, he that hateth me hateth my father also. You reject the pattern, you reject the one who made the pattern. Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 through 5. In fact, the book of Hebrews is probably the most wonderful teacher of the Old Testament. There's not any better. If you want to learn what those sacrifices and ordinances mean in a very short time, read the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 through 5. Here is what the, the writer said, now of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. We have such an high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched and not man. See how the writer is taking the Old Testament tabernacle and the Old Testament high priest and teaching about Jesus? For every high priest is ordained to offer gifts and sacrifices, whereof it is of necessity that this man, Jesus, also have somewhat to offer. They offered animals, he offered himself. For if he were on earth, he should not be a priest, seeing that there are priests that offer gifts according to the law. Jesus was not a Levite. He was from the tribe of Judah. In the Old Testament, he would not have been a priest. Who serve under the example and shadow of the heavenly things. Now listen to this, as Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle, for see, saith he, that thou make all things according to the pattern showed thee in the mount. That is when he was on Mount Sinai. So isn't that wonderful? Whether we're under law or under grace, whether you're talking Old Testament or New Testament, the only religious expression that is acceptable to God is that which is done according to the pattern that he gave. The priesthood, the sacrifices of the animals in the Old Testament were all fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ, who the Bible says is our high priest. The blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. But Jesus offered himself once and for all to take away sin. The Old Testament saints came to God the way he ordained, not in their own way, not according to their own pattern, and New Testament saints are no different. Do you know the difference in the Old Testament saints and the New Testament saints when it comes to believing on the cross? The Old Testament saints look forward to it. Those who were actually present that day looked at it, and we looked back at it. Guess where all of us are looking? At the same cross. As they took their sacrifices to the temple and the priest did all of those things that we learn about in the Old Testament, that was a picture of Jesus. So that when John the Baptist say, said to those Jews, behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world, that Lamb did something those animals couldn't do. That lamb is the one to whom all of those believing Old Testament saints were looking. They looked through the lens 
of the animal sacrifices to the one who would shed his blood for their sins. That confuses a lot of people. Did you know that? There are some denominations with people who can't tell you how an Old Testament saint was saved. They say, well, they, they, they had to keep the law. Really? Well, you're saying none of them are saved, aren't you? Because not a one of them could keep the law. But God gave a pattern. And although we don't bring sacrifices that look forward to the one sacrifice provided by Jesus on the cross, like those Old Testament saints, we still have to come to God in the pattern and fashion he showed us. Jesus gave us that pattern. It's very simple. John chapter 14, verse 6. Many of you probably have that memorized. Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. In other words, I'm the pattern of the way that you come to God. It's through me. What is the pattern by which we must come to God? It's Jesus. He's the fashion and the pattern of God. Further down in that chapter, in, in John 14, verses 8 through 9, it says, Philip saith unto him, Lord, show us the Father. Jesus saith unto him, Have I been so long time with you, and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. And how sayest thou then, show us the Father? Unlike Ahaz, Philip wanted to be shown the Father. And Jesus showed Philip the Father by showing him the likeness, the pattern, the fashion of the Father, which was Jesus himself. Now look back in your text. 2 Kings 16 verse 10. And what was that third thing said about this altar? He sent... The pattern, the fashion, the pattern according to all the workmanship thereof. The workmanship. Workmanship is what's already been done. That's the tricycle when it's all put together and you're about to put your little rug rat on top of it and snap their helmet on and say, all right, let's go give this a try. That's the workmanship. It's not a photo of the finished product. It's not a technical drawing or a diagram. It's the real deal. So this verse might be summed up this way. Ahaz sent the technical drawing of the plans for the altar. He sent a model or a, or a drawing of the actual finished product. And he did that with the assurance that following that technical diagram... And making the altar according to the fashion will, in fact, produce a real altar. Why does he know that? Because he saw for himself a finished product in Damascus. There was an altar that was already made there. Somebody had already followed the technical drawing and made the altar and said, okay, if we follow those instructions and do it this way, this is how it's going to turn out every time. Now, verse 11, And Uriah the priest built an altar according to all that King Ahaz had sent from Damascus. So Uriah the priest made it against King Ahaz came from Damascus. You know what would have rendered all of Ahaz's efforts 
useless? If Uriah the priest simply said no, no. If he did what I do with some of the mail we get or some of the things people bring in, just very politely take it over and throw it in the round file, he should have said no. We're not open to any pattern that man showed us, only to the one that God showed Moses in the mount. We're not going to create an altar that is of a fashion other than the fashion shown to Moses in the mount. We don't care what the workmanship of any other pattern or any other fashion looks like. But as most religious leaders, Uriah did what this worldly king wanted him to do. How many times has a church pastor been persuaded by the church members to change the way things are done without any scriptural warrant at all? Just preference. Maybe they want more of this and less of that. More of this usually means more worldliness, and less of that usually means less Bible teaching. I've seen it. The godly pastor will say no, even at the cost of his position as a pastor, which I would consider a badge of honor if that's why a church ever got rid of a pastor. But the modern-day Uriah is going to build whatever altar the people want. And we'll finish out verse 11 and continue on next week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth because we live in a world where we hear all sorts of things from both sides and in the middle, and we don't know what's true sometimes. We don't know who's telling the truth. And Father, when we look at your word and behold it, we know it's true, that it always has been, it is now, and it always will be. It's unchanging. And for your people, that ought to be a great comfort. And so we do take comfort in that this morning, Lord, knowing that we can rely on you. We never have to wonder if you've told us the truth. We just need to read it, study it, understand it, believe it, and then apply it. And we pray you would help us to do that when we go from this place today in Jesus' name.